Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the AMR Studios. Uh, this month, Eva did an interview with a researcher with a background in political sciences, Dr. Bjorn Rundestand from Gothenburg University. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the AMR studio. Today, we are going to bring a new topic to our podcast that we have not really have an in-depth interview about, and that's political sciences and how it relates to AMR. With us today, we have Bjorn Ronenstrand, and he's going to tell us about his work and the area of studies that he's working on. Bjorn, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, I'm a political scientist uh, working at the SOM Institute at the University of Gothenburg, uh, which is a survey institute, but also working on AMR and involved in the AMR Center at the University of Gothenburg, which is called CARE, a member of the steering group of that center, and have been working in this area for quite some time, uh, at least uh, six years back or something. Great. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? What did you study at university and when you decided that you wanted to do more academic work, what did you start with? When I started the PhD program in political science, I was actually also part of an interdisciplinary research school in Gothenburg, which was focusing on health and the environment and was kind of broad involved uh, PhD students from University of Gothenburg, from the uh, Sahlgrenska University Hospital and also Chalmers University of Technology. So when I started this PhD program, I kind of was already at that time kind of linked to interdisciplinarity and thinking about that and, and meeting people from other subjects and try to start collaborating. So, so my PhD project evolved around kind of a public health issue, kind of with have similarities to AMR. I'll come back to that later, but I was writing about vaccination and especially focusing on political drivers of vaccination willingness. So that was kind of my starting point in my research as a political scientist was kind of different as compared to most other researchers in political science who tend to kind of focus on other things, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, but my focus on vaccinations was kind of an interest in these large-scale public health challenges. Mm -hmm. So how could we address this large-scale problem? What are the political drivers of people's I mean, willingness to engage and do something? Mm -hmm. And in case of vaccination, and the focus of my dissertation was, was um, the pandemic of 2009, the H1N1 pandemic. And I looked into the role of trust and how that could influence willingness to uh, vaccinate. And I mean, the theory behind that was actually that people actually are vaccinating partly because of altruistic reasons and want to contribute kind of to herd immunity or community protection. Now, obviously, there is also, I mean, self-interest in vaccinations is important, but also there is an altruistic side. And I looked into the role of social trust and how that will influence people's propensity to, to kind of 
address this issue or think about the other regarding consequences of vaccination. So, so that led me into, I mean, broader questions about public health and large-scale health-related problems that later kind of led me also to, to AMR. Mm-hmm. I guess that the fact that we live in such a global world today makes things perhaps a little bit different, right? Have you studied or understood how the willingness to be altruistic changes depending if it's within a community also perhaps towards the bigger outer world, you know, now with people traveling and people are more used to seeing pandemics as something that happens because people are so global and people move around a lot, like it happened with Corona. Obviously, that's the most recent example that people can relate to. How does it change depending if it's something that is local versus something that is global? I mean, that's a really, really good question. I mean, that's kind of the center of attention in this theoretical strand in political science that, okay, we we have certain issues that we need collaboration, that people work together. I mean, the classic example is kind of collaboration around the local resource. Let's say that fishermen try to collaborate around preserving the fish stock in a local sea or something like that. And research showed them that it's possible to do that if the subjects involved trust each other. But it's another thing, obviously, to scale this up. Mm-hmm. Can we solve also these global problems with trust? Exactly. I mean, that's a very important question. I also was kind of and has been, I mean, addressed more and more now in the research, these large-scale societal challenges. Do we have also, do people accept also to contribute to this large-scale problem? So, so do they want to see, I mean, that it's possible to do something or do they want to contribute? So, and AMR is, is a global large-scale problem that's it's very difficult for the individual to do something that it won't change so and that's kind of the social trap or the collective action dilemma in essence Mm -hmm. that the only individual contribution is so small so can we have solidarity in that case and thus i mean these features that will kind of promote collaboration in the small scale would that also scale up mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and we have uh, looked into that issue and, and our preliminary answer would be that, okay if we see signs that people are thinking about also I mean have a propensity to, to want to do that in certain cases and that is when they trust other people mm-hmm. and when you mean when they trust other people what kind of people and what kind of trust are you talking about also a good question. I mean, trust is a complicated issue that is heavily debated in our field. But uh, and there, it's one thing to trust. I mean, the institutions backing up society, like trusting in authorities, let's say, when it comes to vaccinations or AMR. I mean, to implement things, it might require that you will trust the public health agency or healthcare, and that's what we call institutional trust. But also to engage in this process, I want to be part of it. It's very important to trust other people. Your peers, is that what you mean? Exactly. Other people around you, I mean, the people that you don't know. And that's important because the norm of reciprocity, basically, because many of these large-scale health challenges, such as the pandemic or AMR, will require people to do things that's in the interest of the collective, but Mm -hmm. might have kind of a cost for the individual, at least in the short term. So... So we saw that in, in relation to the pandemic that people need to accept the curfews or lockdowns mm-hmm. and to kind of have these social distancing practices. But that was basically to, to solve a bigger problem for society to, to, to fight the spread of the pandemic. And, and to some extent, we also have that 
situation when it comes to EMR. People have to kind of accept that the doctor don't want to prescribe antibiotics. You want to, I mean, give back antibiotics to the drugstore instead of releasing it. And, and many of these things that, that individuals need to accept in order to, to solve this dilemma. Yeah, I can, I can see how, how trust it's very important because if I'm going to be suffering from, you know, an infection for a week more than I could have taken an antibiotic, I need to trust that that's the, the benefits outweigh this suffering that I'm having by myself, right? And it's a bit of a, um, no, not philosophical, but it's, it's something that is not tangible, right? My disease and my pain is something that I feel, something that I can, you know, it's part of my life. Whereas the benefit to the society or to the future, you know, my children, my grandchildren, is something that I won't experience. It's something that is not on my power. But I have to trust that that's the overall result, right? And I, I think that that's very difficult. It sounds to me very difficult to make people to trust that that's the truth, you know, or, or ultimately. It's, it's very, very interesting work. And I think it's uh, very important at the core of like getting somewhere, which is what I, I got the feeling when I was reading your background work. And we need to to make people trust that this is a reality, you know. You mentioned that you work in a very interdisciplinary group from very in the beginning of your research, which is not the common thing in AMR. This podcast is an example that we want people to be able to talk to each other and to learn what other people are doing. And that was already kind of your setup from the beginning. But I'm curious to know, how did you see that what you were studying could be applied to AMR or it was like a natural way to evolve your work, to continue your work moving into AMR? How did you get into AMR-related work in particular? I think mainly it was about these similarities between what I've been studying before, I mean, the vaccination dilemma and also then thinking about, okay, AMR, this is another example, but that we could apply basically the same theoretical frameworks and try to understand that. So kind of that starting to think about interesting questions in the public health sphere led me into AMR in a way. But I guess without having this point of departure in interdisciplinarity, I wouldn't go into that field of study mm-hmm. in the end, I guess. So so I think uh, this research school was important and kind of introduced me to try to, to think about it. What can political science contribute to public health and how can also use our theories to, to better understand these processes? And I guess, obviously, resistance in bugs and, and re- antibiotic resistance is something that is not really new is something that scientists or people working with bacteria and developing antibiotics they knew for very early on i mean we know the the classical example that fleming already talked in his novel talk about you know the possibility that doctors would prescribe too much and that it would be their fault that the man will succumb to a resistant infection and so on this is something that has been going on for a really long time but Real political action and trying to coordinate work through the national action plans and the WHO work is relatively recent. So I I guess the need for scientists like you looking to apply political theory from other areas like vaccination or other global health issues into AMR is something that maybe wasn't seen as a need until maybe 10, 20 years ago, how do you think the field has has changed when it comes to that? I think you're absolutely correct in that we now kind of social sciences is very much missing when it comes to AMR. I mean, you can compare with other, I mean, similar questions. Let's say climate change, which is also have this this uh, the same 
characteristics in terms of being a problem that we have been knowing about for a long time, but still we don't see political action. I'm kind of that similar, and also the, I mean, the underlying dynamic that we have this social dilemma type of situation where doesn't matter so much for what individuals do or even what countries do because we have a global problem. So, so these these issues are very similar. But one difference is that social science went into the climate issue much earlier, and I don't know, really know why. Um, quite a, a large part of research related to climate change is is social science, mm-hmm. but that's not the same when it comes to AMR for some reason. So, so it's still a very, I mean, a narrow part of all the research that's produced when it comes to AMR. So, and that's not not because we don't need it because I mean <laughs> as you point out it's very important to try to learn and understand why we see this lack of, of action from political actors and to understand that using I mean theories from political science um, so, so um, that would be my hope that that we could involve more social science in, in the AMR field and and I guess that will require that kind of social scientists understand that social and political science theories could be applied to understand this important issue. It isn't only about kind of solving this practical problem, it's more like that we can, can test our theories mm-hmm. at this case. So Sometimes I wonder, you brought up a very important point, which is the difference in the political action and the conversations around climate change versus AMR, even though they're both global issues, they are both issues where people's actions are at its core like both of them, but how the political actions has been different. And I wonder, sometimes I think, if it's because there is a bottom-up versus a top-down approach or or reaction to the problem. I'm quite young, and climate action on environmentalism is something that has been going on for a while. But I feel like maybe for climate change, the pressure into the politicians and the political system has come from the people. And maybe in AMR the political pressure has come from the experts and the scientists. So it's a little bit of a difference. So for climate action, people, the people, the constituents are asking for things to be done. Whereas from for AMR, for a real long time, was experts saying this is a problem, this is going to become much more of a problem. So I wonder if we empower the society to actually put the pressure from the bottom to the politicians, to the government bodies that can do something about it, if that would change how we talk about AMR and how action, political action happens to AMR? I agree. I mean, I think you have a point here because we kind of studied at the SOM Institute actually what people think about AMR and also what they think about uh, climate and, and try to compare that. And as it, what stands out is that if you ask people things that they are concerned about in society or for the future. If you ask them about climate change or AMR, people in Sweden are, I mean, kind of similarly concerned about climate change and AMR. So so very many people are concerned about AMR. When you ask them explicitly, mm-hmm. are you concerned about AMR? Yes, yes, we are. But a difference here is that if you don't specify what to be concerned about, or if you just want them to express from their mind what are you concerned about for the future quite many people mention climate but no one mentioned AMR mm-hmm. so that kind of indicate that this question is not doesn't come to people's minds if we don't remind them of it so that kind of points to the difference between these issues and, and I think that's the reason that we also see mobilization from citizens that could 
go hand hand with what experts say and want and put pressure on politicians. But on AMR, I mean, it's kind of it's not on the minds of people to the same extent as climate changes. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, definitely. I see how how that might be happening. Is something if you say yeah that. You remember this is a problem. Yeah, of course I remember it's a problem. I should not be asking for antibiotics. But then when you say, all right, why are you worried about for the future? What things should we be putting effort to? And you don't really remind them, they just focus on other things because, you know, there's a lot of pressure into people's minds and well-being of what things they need to be worried about. So maybe they don't have it in the front of their heads all the time. Exactly. And, and that's also related to media because, I mean, media writes about climate change, but seldom writes about AMR. That's not near of how much they write about climate change. So, so that's an issue of, of having issues on the political agenda. Mm-hmm. And climate change is on the political agenda in terms of media attention and people's interest, but AMR is not. Mm-hmm. And I mean, also that's relevant in terms of what politicians want to do. AMR is an extremely complicated technical issue and nothing that's on top of minds of, of the voters. So it's, it's a low salience issue. Mm-hmm. So people, theory, would predict that politicians wouldn't care so much about it. So it will seldom receive that much political attention. But on the other hand, to some extent, that will also leave more room for experts to develop policy and drive the question forward. So that could also, to some extent, be an advantage that might be room for experts to be more involved and, and influence policy. So. I feel like we're getting here more into the bread and butter of what you're studying and working on right now. So let's let's get into that. Can you tell us a bit of the projects that you are working on right now or your work in the recent past? And I read a little bit about how you were working with driving of political action in the European country and also if people are willing to you know, stay sick for longer for the good of the collective and uh, how AMR experts are putting in their their work into this issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you've been studying and some of your results? Yes, actually, we have a very interesting project that was funded by the Swedish Research Council, where I work together with the two political scientists, which is Jon Pjörn, Daniel Carelli, and also Elena Lampi from the Department of Economics, all of them being at the University of Gothenburg. And in that project, it is super interesting, we try to learn and look into collaboration in Europe between countries and, and to see what are kind of the institutional obstacles for collaboration, what are the actor-related obstacles, and what are the opportunities to work together. We have this dilemma, of course, similar kind of to what you have on the individual level, that countries need to come together and collaborate. How can they do that? And what factors influence that? And we have, are now working on kind of finalize that project. We have a very interesting data covered. We have made a survey to experts around Europe who work at different authorities in different countries in Europe. So we have that survey data and use that. And we have also interviews with kind of all EU member plus Norway plus the UK with experts there about AMR and this work and also we have study documents such as the national action plans and, and we have kind of come up now with some interesting results from that study and one is related to the role of the EU mm-hmm. and what the EU could do and the kind of the legitimacy in the EU when it comes to having more power over AMR so we wanted to study that issue because potentially the EU could play an important role 
but not as long as the member states don't want that. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, I mean, that's a, a problem. So many, I hope that EU could step in like a strong enforcer and tell the countries what they should do, basically. <laughs> but that won't happen if the countries don't want that. So we kind of studied what experts think about the role of the EU in one study using that survey data that I mentioned. And we kind of came to the conclusion that, okay, many of these experts actually support EU as going in there and being more strong enforcer about in the issue related to AMR, but also kind of an interesting factor that was related to the experts' willingness to support EU was actually their outlook on other countries. And what we found there was kind of interesting because to some extent it stands against what you would believe in terms of the role of trust because we found out that these experts that was kind of suspicious about other countries uh, kind of if they perceived that other countries were free riding that they didn't do what they could and this tendency to, to think that okay other countries aren't do what they can that kind of was linked to more support of giving EU more authority so so that's kind of an interesting dynamic to see how these experts think about EU and, and, and what the role the EU can play. When you talk about uh, the concept of free-riding countries and that they don't do what they can, do you mean just in the realm of health policy or following health directives or uh, national action plans when it comes to AMR? Or do you mean also in the broader sense of the European Union where some countries put more money into the European Union and some countries borrow more money from the European Union? That's a good question. In this study, we focused on kind of asked about what did they do in terms of AMR in their mm-hmm. country. But I mean, that could also, the question could also be if this is more of a broad question, that it might be that actually there is perceptions that other countries do, do not fulfill their obligations, so to speak, in other areas as well. But this particular study focusing on, okay, do experts think that other countries do what they should in AMR and those who didn't feel that that they, they were more inclined to say okay we need to bring in the more strongly and to be uh, an enforcer in Europe so um, and talking about practicalities how could the European Union have more power over what's happening with AMR policies in Europe is that really a possibility or it will have to really fall more into the national actions that happen across Europe I would say that as now it's not possible, but I mean, EU has changed and EU could change again. And now we have seen the pandemic that have demonstrated the need to have collaboration and a strong EU to support member states. So there is now an ongoing discussion about the role of the EU in kind of related to health outbreaks. So we don't know which direction EU will go and there will be obviously resistance from countries saying that we cannot have this EU enforcer in health because that's national competence. Mm -hmm. At least on the human side, I mean, EU has more power on the agricultural side. So there is a discussion and going on, and we don't know what that would end up in, but I think the pandemic has helped, perhaps opened up a window of opportunity for EU to having more involvement in public health and be more of a strong enforcer in that area, but we don't know. Mm-hmm. It is the beginning of the work. I guess that kind of work, like the work that you are doing, it's something that the European Union can use as a base to decide, all right, we need to move into more European policy enforcement or action rather than just leave it to the national governments. Because research shows that this is the way to go and this is what it could be better for 
the overall community in the European Union, right? I guess. <laughs> yeah, uh, perhaps. Uh... I perhaps won't stretch it that far, but still, I mean, it indicates that many experts are in favor of giving you more power, but perhaps not surprising. I mean, these experts are part of kind of this epistemic communities all over Europe, and they, they see this question as very important, and they want to have action, and they see EU as an important actor in this process. Mm-hmm. But there are other possibilities to try to, to get to grip with this global issue. We also, in this project, kind of studying also leadership in AMR. In the same survey which I talked about, we kind of asked also these experts about which countries are leading in Europe mm-hmm. when it comes to AMR. And that was very interesting. We could see, and we tried also in the work that we're doing now, try to analyze and understand on the one hand, which are the leaders in the EU, uh, but also what factors that can explain that, because that's also important. We, EU is one way, perhaps, but also having national leaders and what could also be a way forward. And we kind of, perhaps, preliminary results will indicate that we have kind of the Nordic countries coming out as leaders and indicating also quite interesting that it might be possible to, to some extent, lead by example, because, I mean, Nordic mm-hmm. countries have been successful in many ways when it comes to AMR with low levels of resistance. And, and low levels of antibiotic use and kind of early on when it comes to implementing stewardship measures and so forth. So so we're looking into, we're not finished with that research, but very interesting to see if this lead by example could hold. Yeah, so it, it's like a different approach to how to implement change instead of having European Union as this fluffy, not very defined entity trying to enforce policy, then you kind of have a coalition of countries where some countries are the ones that lead or they are able to export social innovations or ways of working with it and then trying to implement it in in countries where it's not as good. And I'm thinking about the South European countries, myself being from Spain. What can we learn from Sweden? That's, That's a conversation that is among experts and among even people when when I talk to you know friends and family and why is Sweden so good at not having resistance while in the south of Europe and Italy we're having so many people suffering from this can can we do something similar will it work even or is it just does it just work because you know the Nordic countries work in a particular way and if we would try to do the same thing here in Spain it would not work you know and I'm saying here because I am actually right now in Spain so that's why I'm related to that um, it's very interesting it's a different way of looking at policy right and an, yeah. an action but, at, uh, hmm. but the, the question you touch upon here is very interesting also because it's one thing okay we we might have a more leaders and to demonstrate how it's possible to to do things and kind of find solution to it at least partly but it's another thing to say that we should implement exactly the same policy in other countries that's perhaps not the same thing mm-hmm. because as you i mean kind of hint to that it's, there are differences between the countries in europe and that has the need to be taken into account when when implement policy obviously yeah but there is always i feel like there is always something to learn even if you need to tweak it or change it or trying to implement with how things work in different places but as as you know, I guess it's an example of like your interdisciplinary work. You come with a set of values of understanding of how the world works and then you work with someone that has a different one and then how do we work together? And it boils down to what you talk at the very beginning, which is collaboration. How do we collaborate? But it's very interesting to think about these different ways that 
action could happen and be driven by. We are a bit in into the interview, so I want to move the the questions into trying to to peek on your area of work and from your experience and the time you've been working on AMR and social sciences and political sciences uh, applied to AMR, what do you think is missing? What would you like to see more of? Oh, that's a good question. And it's a difficult question because I can, from the perspective of being a social scientist in this area, I would see, like to see more social science to begin with. That's the first thing, that we have to engage more social scientists in this area. Because, I mean, as it is now, I mean, it's still scattered and uh, we don't have kind of enough people. If you look, for example, in Sweden, very few political scientists take interest in this issue even though it's super relevant for political science and politics and, and the theories that we work with. So the first thing would, would I like to have to like expand, mm-hmm. involve more social science research. That would be first on my wish list. And then also kind of inspire researchers and trying to make social science researchers aware of that. I mean, I mean we can use these interesting cases also to develop our theories. It's not necessary so that we just kind of must be policy relevant. This research is often policy relevant as well, but it's also, I mean, tied to, I mean, fundamental theoretical questions in our field. Mm-hmm. So that is, I guess, it's, it's important to... From your experience, why do you think it's difficult to engage these political science researchers or social scientists in general in this area. What is the main barrier that you think we can overcome, should overcome to get there? I think to start with, I mean, the disciplinarity have some institutional obstacles in, in our field. I mean, it, on the one hand, I mean, it, it's applauded upon quite much and say this is the future, but it's still obstacles in terms of that it's not seen specifically as core political science to be engaged in AMR. Mm-hmm. It's kind of still outside what is the norm and the core of our subject to some extent. So just going interdisciplinary is complicated to begin with. But also perhaps the illustration of climate change being now a quite important issue in political science and start to kind of get into, I mean, the, the best journals and, and so forth. So indicate that it's need not to be that way. So it might be some something specific with AMR that is difficult. So it might not only be on the supply side, so I say it, it could also be related to the existing field in AMR that is kind of difficult to compete also with the existing networks in mm-hmm. public health and so so forth, So which are, are already quite strong established communities. So getting in there is perhaps is also hard yeah so it's not only from the scientists the social scientists point of view but also like we don't make it easy for people to come in and establish themselves in something that is already kind of built so i guess we should work in being a bit more open or trying to show people that we really need their input and their background in in this question yeah i guess it's both it's both i mean kind of a matter of interest from our field but also it's important to think about how to uh, involve and include social scientists, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very true. There's a question that we ask almost all the guests that we have through the studio here, which everyone kind of interprets in a different way, depending on how they work and who they work with. And it's about what do you find is most misunderstood about your field of work? 
And your field of work is very big. And I'm talking before the interview how you also go out and talk to the people, the general public, the citizens out there. When you talk about what you do, what is it that is most misunderstood? I mean, I could point to specific questions when related with, because some of my research concerns kind of the public attitudes also as well to AMR and as I mentioned, people's willingness to kind of abstain antibiotics when it's possible, as we mentioned previously. And when me and my colleagues kind of talk about this research and the importance of acceptability, you kind of often hear from my colleagues in political science, why do we care about this in, in Sweden? You have to have, have a prescription to have antibiotics in Sweden. Why care about public support? And kind of that is, I mean, kind of <laughs> an example of, okay, we have to make this more complicated. I mean, because doctors are influenced by what patients think. And if we're going to implement stronger policy, we need citizen support and all that issues related to attitudes and how they influence the AMR field. So, so that is I mean, a very specific thing that, that people ask from political science field. So why, why do we need to care about this? The system should solve this, basically. Yeah. We have a system, and, but that's also very narrow to Sweden. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, Sweden, we, we have this system of prescription and you need that because to have uh, antibiotics, but just go outside in different countries in Europe, then you can can have antibiotics without prescriptions not if we move outside Europe I guess that's mm. the norm or at least very widespread so kind of what we get from from other social science it might be that, that why is this important we have a system that works well but it's more complicated than that but but uh, so, so that wouldn't go into a specific question where there is a misunderstanding but um, I will also go back to that that I raised before that about theory the role of theory in, in the work of AMR that generally I think that mm, from my field you would think that working with AMR or other health-related issues might be a theoretical and, and more policy-oriented, but in fact, most of these research that we are doing is very um, core fundamental theoretical questions that we explore that are fundamental for political science. Mm-hmm. So kind of that's um, something that could be a misunderstanding that we are very much closer to policy. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, policy-relevant, but still very fundamental questions from for our field in terms of exploring and developing theory mm-hmm. which is important i guess for practice later right like exactly. the theory is exactly. the base of it if you don't have the theoretical framework and how things work you won't be able to apply change into practice right so i agree that's fundamental yeah exactly fundamental we are running out of time, sadly, and going into the end of our interview, but I would like to open up this digital space for you. If you there's anything that you would like to bring up to our audience or something that you would like to, you know, highlight now in, in the end of the interview, before they sign off, go home, if there's one thing that they should kind of remember and bring home from this. I mean, I think we have talked quite much about this, how to kind of bridge social science with, I mean biomedical science or other natural science takes on, on AMR. And, and so I would like to say that have to have, be patient about uh, that interdisciplinarity is, I mean, a slow process, but we have much to gain. So so please reach out to uh, social scientists and try to make them involved in AMR because we, we, we need to collaborate. Exactly. And it all starts by people talking to other people, right? That's very important. I have to say that I met Bjorn in a meeting that we had recently of centers in Sweden, of AMR centers, and it was so in 
reach to talk to people that have different approaches to work that are interested in different topics so I think by like motivating people to have an interest in something by just talking and sharing it's it's a really important part of the equation right yeah I agree <laughs> great well with this I thank you Bjorn so much for being with us today I really hope that the people that have listened to this interview take on how yeah how important it is that we work together that we collaborate that we try to find a path forward from theory to action and practice, right? That's kind of where we're going with. And that the social sciences and political sciences are essential and very important for us to get to a better place in the future when it comes to AMR. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back from this, uh, what I consider was a wonderful interview. Hi, Jenny. This is going to be your official last episode before you defend. How are you doing? <laughs> yes. I don't really know how to answer that question. This is a, I think most people that have been in this situation know that it's a pretty, like people keep asking me how you're doing. I'm like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be a, a great day, but I just wanted to lead with this, that this is an important episode for you for this reason in particular. Yeah. I want to know, I know that you have a particular interest in, you know, the area of AMR that is more applied and political sciences. So I'm very, very curious to get your insights about this interview. What did you think? Yes, yeah, so I, I really love this interview and I've loved some of the work that's been done in Gothenburg before. I have to say one of the things that Bjorn mentioned was a study from Gothenburg. I heard the results a couple of years ago at a national course. This study looking at what people think of when you ask them about like, oh, what, what are these important issues? And if you give them the alternative of antibiotic resistance, it's up there with, you know, climate change and these other like well-accepted global issues. But if you don't give them it, as an alternative, they don't think about it. So like, for my interpretation, of that is, you know, it's not in the front of your head, it's not something you're thinking about. But you know, it's a problem, which is a step in the right direction, I guess. But I really loved that study. And I love that Bjorn mentioned it again. Mm -hmm. And I also have to say, it's very clear. I mean, the UAC is one of these interdisciplinary research schools. And Bjorn came from a similar situation. There's an interdisciplinary background in his research education. And the kind of researcher he is now, it's so, it's enlightening to see that, you know, there, this is the kind of researcher that comes out of that kind of a, the interdisciplinary school, mm -hmm. that somebody that has this interdisciplinary thought process, they're thinking about how their work works with other people's work, and how do they get into these fields, and how can you connect these different concepts. And it was just really nice to see this, you know, after the fact, from somebody who's left the PhD level and is moving on into, as a researcher. Mm -hmm. I think it was great to see. Yeah, I completely agree with you on this. I think he also kind of brought up in the interview, you know, how for his particular field of studies, doing this kind of work is not really the norm. And that if it mm -hmm. wasn't because he already started in such a setup that maybe he would not have moved his political science background into AMR. Yeah. It was the fact that he was in this interdisciplinary setup of looking at things in a different way than just the disciplinary political science mind. Maybe he would not have ended up working on this. So I agree with you that, you know, the setup of how you develop your research studies and your research education matters. And he's a great example of this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I love that he said this thing that it's it's a two way street, you know, getting people interested in it's not just about getting people that have a maybe social sciences background, or that's their field of research, interested in AMR. It's also about bringing in these people opening up the doors and setting up these sorts of interdisciplinary collaborations where this is going to be possible. I mean, it needs it requires something from both sides. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was a great reminder of, you know, it's not just like, oh, why don't they care? That's right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's on everybody. Mm-hmm. One thing that uh, to me, I think it was a key thing in the interview and re-listening to it, I feel like maybe I didn't put enough emphasis during the interview about it, is the fact that Bjorn brings up that AMR could be seen not only as an area where political sciences can come in and put their seed and their grain of sand to create new policies and applied work, but that AMR is also a wonderful area to use as a study set and to develop theoretical framework in political sciences that maybe later could be applied or could be developed into yeah, practice and uh, policy applied work. But that is a very nice setup for this groundwork of developing theory and testing frameworks and moving on this ground work of the topic of political sciences. Yeah, kind of using this applied aspect to look into the more theoretical background, like a little bit of a backwards. And I feel like for Bjorn, that was something important. He brought it up in the something that was misunderstood about the field. And the more I think about it, the m- more important it feels in my mind that we are able to recognize and to show people that, you know, they can come in and use the AMR world sphere area to yeah. to use it for their framework and theoretical studies as well. Something that hit me that I've been thinking about since I heard the interview, and it's not really in the frame of what, what Bjorn works with. It's a political aspect, but more, I don't know, current politics rather than a political science take on it. Like I say, people in Sweden often think about, you know, oh, things are great here. We have relatively low levels of antibiotic resistance. We require prescription. And we'll, we'll talk more about this in a little bit as well. But uh Yes, we have a lot of good things here in Sweden, but we recently also had a, an election <laughs> and it got into my mind this, I think people forget the effects of certain things. Like a lot of politics comes down to budgeting and how, how we use our collective resources and, and how, we, how we put these different things, how we prioritize. And a lot of the decisions that maybe don't seem to have anything to do with AMR might affect how these sorts of efforts are able to continue even in a country in Sweden where, yeah, everybody, you ask any politician, they'd say, absolutely, antibiotic resistance is a problem. But is there an understanding of what the effects are of certain decisions? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of these things where studying AMR with a certain lens would definitely help for policymakers in in Mm -hmm. how we can see what's needed. I don't necessarily think people don't care. I think it's a lack of understanding of the effects of certain decisions. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of brought me this reminder of, you know, I hope we can bring more of the science to the policymaker decision as well. Yeah. Even in countries like Sweden that have a relatively good situation at the moment. Yeah, like I think you cannot get comfortable in a sense, right? Yeah. You cannot just... If you get comfortable, then you're just creating a problem in the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think you're very right. And it's uh, important to have this in mind. And I'm, I'm happy you brought it up, especially in the context mm. of the recent political sphere here in Sweden as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But with that, I kind of wanted to touch on something that Bjorn talked about a lot that I thought was really interesting. And luckily, Ava, you found that he, he actually has a very recent published article mm-hmm. that we're going to talk about in the news. 
where we talk more about trust in healthcare, and this is in the Swedish setting, and how it works with antibiotic prescription and getting antibiotics without a prescription. Mm-hmm. So with that, I want to go ahead to the news. Yes, let's do that. See you there. Welcome to the news sections for this episode. Today you will realize we kind of ended up in a thematic episode of sorts. So yeah. we talked about <laughs> the, the work of Bjorn Ronestrand and we're going to cover one of his articles and we're going to talk about antibiotic prescribing from different angles in this new section with these three different articles that we're bringing you today. So Jenny, can you bring to us this article published recently by uh, Dr. Ronestrand? Yeah, absolutely. So this article was published in Plus One in September 21st of this year, so very, very recent. It's called Non-Prescription Acquisition of Antibiotics, Prevalence, Motives, Pathways, and Explanatory Factors in the Swedish Population. And I have to also throw out that one the other authors, one of Bjorn's co-authors, is Christian Minte, who we've previously interviewed as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Philosopher. Mm-hmm. So this one kind of comes around a bit to us. I thought it was a very interesting study. So they basically looked at a pilot study in Sweden and looked at questions of are people acquiring antibiotics without prescription and the way they use this definition is saying basically have you gotten hold of antibiotics without having a prescription from a Swedish physician and they didn't really tie it to use or anything like that they're looking more at this like acquiring how we get antibiotics and this is also based on an online stratified survey. I have to say some of the results from the study are very positive. It's a relatively low number of people that have acquired antibiotics without a Swedish prescription. It was out of over 4,000 respondents, it was 2.3% had obtained. Um, Most of these had obtained a prescription abroad. So it wasn't without a prescription. It just wasn't from a Swedish prescriber. 28% had obtained the antibiotics without a prescription. Some people had received from a friend and even fewer had obtained online without a prescription. So a lot of this was tied to obtaining antibiotics abroad which can also be completely reasonable. And I think that's something that's important to emphasize that if you get sick and you're abroad and you get a prescription from a doctor, that's not necessarily wrong. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. And it doesn't have anything to do with your perception on antibiotics and whether or not they should be given with a prescription. They did also look at why people were trying to get these antibiotics. And one of the most common reasons given was that they already knew what kind of antibiotics they needed or that they wanted to stockpile antibiotics in case they were denied by a physician. Mm -hmm or that it was easier to get them without a prescription. However, I thought it was very interesting that they also tied this that among these people that did already get an antibiotic without a prescription, they were also more likely to do it in the future than the other people that hadn't acquired an antibiotic recently without a prescription. And again, what they found in general is that most people had a high belief in physicians. If you look at the whole group of respondents, many of them don't acquire antibiotics without a prescription and many people bring in trust in a physician as well as not wanting to increase the antibiotic resistance issue as factors to why they wouldn't do this. One interesting finding in the study is that they found that this was acquiring an antibiotic without a Swedish prescription was tied to a lack of trust in healthcare, in Swedish healthcare, specifically in this case. They found that the group that replied that they had very little trust in healthcare had nine times higher odds of a previous acquisition of non-prescription antibiotics. So basically, it's very much tied to this lack of trust. And there is a relatively high trust for healthcare in Sweden, which is clear from the study, as you see as well. I mean, we're talking about a small group of the respondents when we talk about these factors. It's not most of the respondents. Mm -hmm. However, one thing I think they do very well in the study is tie it to, well, this is Sweden, but if you have a country where there's a lower 
trust in healthcare or institutional trust, then this can obviously be a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about requiring a prescription for antibiotics. It's basically, will people try to find them otherwise? Mm -hmm. And the authors did also bring up a specific case of, I don't remember where it was now, but a place where pharmacists made it clear that they were comfortable giving antibiotics without a prescription, despite there being a legal requirement not to do so. But I think in general, this was a very nice study, very well explained. I didn't come with that many surprises per se. I think there was a lot of interesting things. It's open access, so anyone can read it. But I think it ties very well into Bjorn's interview, especially mm -hmm. talking about this sort of trust and maybe what you also brought up, the fact that studying this sort of trust in institutions is definitely an aspect of political science. And in this case, we look at it through the lens of antibiotic resistance mm -hmm. and use of antibiotics. I think it's interesting to use the Swedish cohort as a place to study this, because as you say, the general consensus is that people trust the authorities or the governmental bodies when it comes to healthcare. Yeah. The results show that the majority of the people won't ever think even getting antibiotics without a prescription. Mm. But for the small percentage that they do so, understanding the underlying reasons for that to happen is very enlightening, right? Because it's like you are having a magnifying lens. Yeah, the whole country as a whole, if you want to draw generalizations, they are okay. They won't get non-prescribed antibiotics, you know. Mm. But for the little percentage, can we look into it and understand why that's happening? And in this case, it shows an indication that it's because they don't trust these authorities right and then they will find yeah. ways around to do what they think is best because they don't trust the authorities so i think it's a, a very nice study to try to pinpoint like why is this happening and maybe if it's happening that way in sweden we could think that in other places where the trust on these institutions is low that could lead to acquiring antibiotics non through the prescription route right hmm. so it was very cool and very timely i have to say to this yeah, absolutely. episode as well so that's nice but you're also going to bring to us another related recent article about prescription right and perhaps more from a historical point of view yeah so this article is a bit of a um review of something that happened before kind of a bit of an update of the current situation it's an article in the Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy titled The Relevance of the Consensus Principles for Appropriate Antibiotic Prescribing in 2022, and it was published on the 6th of September. This is also open access, I should say, so we're not going to get into too much of the details, but it just give you a quick overview. So the historical part of this was at the end of the 1990s, and they published in 2002, this group of clinicians got together. They call themselves the Consensus Group, an independent multinational and interdisciplinary panel. Uh, the Consensus Group on Resistance and Prescribing in res Respiratory Tract Infections. Mm -hmm. So this is specifically for respiratory tract infections, but it can be applied more broadly. This They also bring up, you know, respiratory tract infections are one of the more in, important ones when it comes to the use of antibiotics and infection that has the biggest effect on people's health. So this is like an early example of uh, a stewardship effort. Right, trying to try to find what is best when it comes to prescriptions? I think it came down more to trying to help clinicians in their prescribing practices more than a, I don't know, if it's a stated stewardship effort, but mm -hmm. rather trying to bring these things together. But also, of course, thinking about antibiotic resistance as an issue. So basically what this kind of boiled down to was a publication that included six principles for appropriate antibiotic prescribing, known as the consensus principles. So I'm just going to briefly go through these. 
these principles are number one, treat only bacterial infections. Number two, optimize diagnosis and severity assessment. Number three, maximize bacterial eradication. Number four, recognize and act on local resistance prevalence. Number five, utilize pharmacodynamics to assist in the choice of effective agents and dosing. And number six, to integrate local resistance, efficacy, and cost effectiveness. Mm -hmm. So the point of this publication now is basically to go back and see, is this still relevant? Is this still what we need to do? What's been done since then? And think about the history of it, 2002. There's a lot that's been happening in this field in the last 20 years. They bring up several, the O'Neill Report, the WHO Global Action Plan, the implementation and decision-making behind many national action plans that have been set in. There's a lot that's been done, but it's also clear that this is still a problem. You know, a lot of surveys looking at the burden of global antibiotic resistance show it's still growing. It's still big, especially in these fields of respiratory tract infections. They bring up a lot of surveillance projects and a lot of improvements. It's still not global. It's still not properly covering, and it might not be done properly everywhere. There were definitely COVID-19 setbacks that they talk about, especially with on national action plan levels. Progress has been made but it's not perfect. One thing they bring up is the WHO AWARE classification is also a sort of guidance for prescribers, or the A stands for access, and the WA stands for watch, and RE stands for reserve. However, they also suggest the addition of two more principles, including intelligent empirical describing. So basically include safety data and known resistance issues. They brought up fluoroquinolone prescriptions aren't really warranted if it's an uncomplicated infection, an uncomplicated UTI, for example, because of safety issues, as well as that prescribers should also encourage patient compliance. So encourage them to really follow any instructions regarding the prescription so that the drugs are used properly and taken care of properly. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm really going to say about this paper itself. It's part of a a supplement, if I understand right, that also includes a discussion of several different countries. And I can recommend to read into that. But I think it's a nice little historical aspect and kind of a review of what's been done, how's it going, what are we working on, more from a prescriber's perspective, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And I think it was pretty well written. So I, I, it's definitely worth reading into and looking at. And I think if you're interested in this, those, those country-specific studies are definitely of interest. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think that this little publication also ties very well with the last thing we're going to talk about for this episode, which I'm very happy to say that it's an article published by one of our alums of USC, Vemisola Alwell-Brown. She works in uh, public health uh, in low and middle income countries. And she just published one of her latest work from her PhD thesis. So this article has for the title Patterns and Contextual Determinants of Antibiotic Prescribing for Febrile Under 5 Outpatients at Primary and Secondary Healthcare Facilities in Bugisu, Eastern Uganda. And it was published in the Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy-Antimicrobial Resistance. And it was published on 5th of September of this year to be published in the October issue. This article comes after another article that we already talked about it in the podcast where she looked into the broader prescribing numbers in a lot of low and middle income countries. So that was more like a survey of countries and see if there are any differences between countries when it comes to prescribing. So this is like coming in and zooming into one particular country, in this case, Uganda and the eastern part of Uganda, and then asking the question, 
given the fact that antibiotics are prescribed at whatever rate it is for children under five with febrile presentation at the primary and secondary and hospital healthcare settings, can we find any contextual determinants that can explain differences in prescribing patterns, right? In the introduction to this paper, they are talking about the importance of doing these kind of studies to see how can we aid the implementation of national action plans and where the proper adherence to local guidelines, where are they falling through, where are the problems, why maybe are not being followed as good as they should, right? So they went and did um, surveys and looked at outpatient registers at 37 facilities, including public, private, not-for-profit, and also general hospital facilities. And then they looked at the bulk of the data, how many prescriptions were given out to kids, what were the underlying reasons for these prescriptions, what kind of prescriptions were they given out, And what they found is that 62% of all the patients got antibiotics, in particular 22 different types of antibiotics, 12 belonging to what you mentioned as the access group of antibiotics, six Mm -hmm. antibiotic types belonging to the watch, and very good news, there was no reserve prescriptions, so that's uh, very nice. And they also saw that the most common indication to give antibiotics was for acute upper respiratory tract infection. So that also relates to the article that you just talked about, Jenny. With one particular interesting result, which was that 9% of the children that presented or were diagnosed with non-severe pneumonia got the antibiotics in line with the local guidelines when it comes to amount and length of the treatment. So that was pointed out as a very low percentage numbers uh, when it comes to what it's really, really antibiotics indicated for, which is non-severe bacterial pneumonia that need antibiotics to be treated. Mm. So this is kind of like the background of the data and the numbers a little bit, but the important thing here and what they were after is like, okay, can we see any differences in the prescribing patterns within these facilities because they were looking at different facilities? The overall result was that 22% of the prescribing differences could be attributed to between healthcare facility differences, seeing higher odds for prescription in higher levels on the healthcare uh, and the general hospital as well, and also higher odds in the private not-for-profit versus the public healthcare facilities. They argue and they comment that antibiotic prescriptions here might be linked to also availability rather than the proper indication, because what they see is that a lot of the prescriptions were given out for amoxicillin, which is a very common antibiotic, and it is actually indicated for some cases. But the second most common prescribed antibiotic was cotrimoxazole, which is actually not recommended for any of the indications that was given to. So they are arguing that it's rather what is available and where is available, in these cases, the higher-end healthcare settings, rather than what is it that is actually indicated for and what they should be studying. So these results point out for the need to encourage the adherence to national guidelines, but also provide antibiotics in all the different parts of the healthcare setting so they can use it. And also the importance of diagnostics, they are also bringing that up. Mm. And we talked about it before, you know, the first step is being able to identify what is it that 
the patients have in order to decide what are we giving it. Yeah. But I think this paper, it's it's very nice and very important to go beyond, you know, just seeing, okay, did they di- diagnose something that needed antibiotics? Did they have the diagnostic available? Which is, of course, very important, but that's like the baseline. It's looking beyond that. Are there any contextual factors regarding the situation of the healthcare setting that go beyond the patient-doctor relationship and the tests that the doctors can do? Are there other things there that we can use to aid and modify? So are they modifiable drivers that can help us get into a better adherence to the national action plans and to the proper guidelines? And we Mm -hmm. always talk about this dilemma of the excess versus access. Because in this paper, they also see that there is much more prescriptions that they actually need because not all acute upper respiratory tract infections actually are going to be bacterial infections, right? So there is an excess in prescriptions, whereas at the same time, there is a lack of access in certain regions, in certain areas where to use antibiotics really how they are needed to be used. Yeah. And I think if we tie all these three articles together a bit, we've really covered the issue of, okay, how do we decide what to prescribe in the consensus principles? Like, okay, what, what, how do we do this the best? And then the first article from Bjorn also mentions, you know, there's this other aspect of antibiotics without a prescription. How do people handle this other frame of that? But this last study definitely covers a lot of the issues. It's easy to talk about the, or it's not even easy, but it's easier to talk about the theory behind prescribing the correct antibiotic at the correct time. But in the practical level there, when they can't say if it's bacterial, when they can't say what it is, when they maybe don't have access to the proper antibiotic, what happens in practice? Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, like you said, there's definitely highlights in that article that are good. That sounds like they're trying, but there are difficulties along the way that are are setting back the real goal. Yeah, I think these kind of articles, they show up, you know, it's not... It's not for a lack of trying. I think everybody wants to do their best and everybody wants to take care of their patients the best way they can. And also, you know, in the bigger context of AMR, how can we prescribe in a way that has the least impact? Mm. But there are still barriers. There are still factors that are embedded in the system, in this case, the healthcare system, that account for these differences. So we need to understand them in order to change them. And there's definitely more difficulties with these sorts of issues that we've talked about now but I think this is this gives a little overview of the issues and the difficulties Mm -hmm. and whatnot so it ended up being a nice thematic news section exactly and uh, together with the interview as well so it's a little thematic episode yeah for this month of October and we're already there (laughs) yeah great so I think we're done for this month I am very looking forward to your dissertation your defense I'm looking forward to being done. <laughs> yes. Next time we talk, I will call you a doctor, most probably. Hopefully. Not sure. Knock on wood, but hopefully. Well, you don't need to call me doctor, but hopefully you could call me doctor. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a nice point. Great. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode, got some insights and some food for thought as well. And hope to see you back with us on the next one. Bye. Yeah, see you. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.